Amen. You guys go ahead and take a seat as we head into the second week of our series called How to Read the Bible. First off, I just want to say, like, I am so glad that you're here. Uh, I want you to be thinking about this question as we go tonight. The question is, how does the Bible impact your life? And if you're having a hard time thinking of what could I possibly think of with that question, maybe consider the things on the bottom, your beliefs, relationships, habits, choices, experiences with joy and pain and etc. We want to give you just a few moments to be able to discuss with one another. We'll turn to somebody next to you, maybe even introduce yourself if you need to, and just say, like, how does the Bible impact your life? And if you have to just say, honestly, it, it doesn't, that's okay. But I want you to be thinking about this as we head into the talk tonight. So go ahead, think about that, talk about it with one another for just a few moments. As my good friend Matthew McConaughey would say, all right, all right, all right. Let's go ahead and get it together. Thanks, Alondra. Everybody say, thanks, Alondra. She's pretty great. That's what I'm talking about. And thank you again for being here. Um, I'm just really happy that we get to worship together. Uh, last week was kind of like rough with the blizzard that came down and down, but here you are tonight and you showed up like a blizzard. Look at you. I'm so happy that you're here. Uh, my name is Danny. I'm a pastor here and I'm just loving that we get to worship together. So I want to start off tonight by telling you this. I've never really enjoyed adult crossword puzzles. What I mean by that is like fourth grade crossword puzzles are kind of fun. The ones that you do in class because it says something like, what's a three-letter word for an animal that barks? Dog. Dog, it's really easy. But here's an actual crossword puzzle clue that showed up in a newspaper. Are you ready? 14-letter word for the study of fingerprints. Anybody have dactylography? Anybody? Now, when I come across words like this in crossword puzzles, I immediately stop. I get out. I'm not interested in the crossword puzzle anymore because it's confusing and it stops me. But if you continue in the crossword puzzle, and maybe if you start to go to other places in the crossword puzzle, you start to see how things fit in and how they come together. And this would be like a complete crossword puzzle. Dactylography all of a sudden starts to make sense and how it creates these other words and how these other words support it. Now, what's the point that I'm trying to make here? The point that I'm trying to make is dactylography by itself might be a fun vocabulary word, but out of context and without any of these other words, that's all that it is. Now, in this crossword puzzle, dactylography, as you can see, is this word that creates all sorts of other words. It, it fulfills the crossword puzzle. It completes it, if you will. The reason why I'm telling you that is because it makes me think about how Jesus is talking to a group of people in a famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. You heard this in the Bible reading for tonight. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter five. Would you go ahead and read this with me? On the count of three. One, two, three. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Now, if you would bear with me on this, because I know that it is an imperfect illustration, but to me, I wonder if Jesus is kind of saying, I am the dactylography of the biblical crossword puzzle. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it can be very frustrating because it's not making sense and all the answers aren't there for you right away. But as you continue to read it and you start to see how these things come together, you will find that Jesus completes the biblical crossword puzzle. He fulfills it. And don't get me wrong, Jesus by himself is really, really cool. But Jesus without the rest of the Bible seems like just kind of this guy out of context. And he actually will make more sense if you read all of it. And I want to tell you this. 
Jesus does not just fit into the Bible. Jesus actually completes the Bible, the whole thing, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's what we're gonna talk about tonight. But even further than that, I wanna push this point. Jesus doesn't just fit into your life. He actually completes and fulfills your life. And he does this throughout his life. And he does this by fulfilling the entire biblical crossword puzzle, if you will. Like I said, Jesus is teaching this thing in the Sermon on the Mount. This was the most groundbreaking and crazy speech that had ever been given. In fact, there's one historian of ancient Jewish culture who put it this way. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount was giving the most radical and ground-shaking speech ever given with relation to its context. The content of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was so advanced, it would be like sending a text message in the 1700s when the only way to get a message out of town was through the Pony Express. The things that Jesus would go on to teach in the Sermon on the Mount were so wild and crazy. And we know this because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter seven, Matthew concludes his storytelling of it with this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. Everybody say that, real authority. He taught with real authority. In the Greek, it implies that it is this divine, God sort of authority. And it was quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Jesus was standing out here. This is what made Jesus different than any other teacher. Now, technically speaking, I am a teacher of religion, right? I'm a pastor. You've got a lot of other people in this room who teach in different sorts of situations. You've got other people in this room who will get up here and give a message. We're, we're teachers of the Bible, but we're not teaching with any authority of our own. Rather, we are taking the authority that we find from God in the Bible, we study it, we unpack it, and we do our best to present it to you. The words that are in this Bible, that's the authority. I'm not the authority. When Nicole comes up here, she's not the authority. When Allison's leading worship, she's not the authority. But instead, the word of God is the authority. And when they're listening to Jesus speak, they're saying, it's not like you're pointing to God. It's not like you're unpacking somebody else's authority. You're speaking as if this is your own. And I think that it makes sense because Jesus didn't point people to God. He claimed to be God. When Jesus would go on in his Sermon on the Mount, he went into this long discourse. And over the next six paragraphs, he's gonna be reminding them of the Old Testament law. And then he's gonna be going deeper with it. He's gonna be saying things like, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to you, you shouldn't even look at another person with lust in your eye. He says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but I say to you, anybody who's angry with their brother or sister and calls them an idiot, they've done the same thing. They'll be judged in the same way. Jesus is teaching with this authority. He's not discounting the word of God, but he's speaking as the word of God with that kind of authority, and it is absolutely blowing people's minds. This is what would really ruffle people's feathers. Up to this point in the book of Matthew, nobody's looked at Jesus and said, you're a problem. But Matthew is saying here in Matthew's chapter five through seven, this is the foundation, this authority that Jesus spoke with, the way that he was able to take the word of God and bring it to people in a new and fresh way because he is the word of God. That's what really made people mad. The authority that he claimed the very fact that he wasn't pointing people to God, he was saying, I am God. 
The reason why I'm not a very controversial person is because when you gather here, all I try to do is say, there's Jesus, go to him. There's the cross, or there's Jesus, go to him. I'm not telling you anything other than that. One thing that we like to say around our church is we have never converted a single person to Christianity. We've never saved a single person. The Holy Spirit, by the completed work of Jesus Christ, is what gives the power to save people. What is what gives the power to come to Jesus, to know Jesus, to experience him. That's all we're doing. Even next week. So next week, I'm really excited because my dad, his name is Mike Hausler. A lot of you know him just as Pastor Mike. He's coming here and he's preaching. And I'm like thrilled for you guys to hear him in person. A lot of you maybe have just seen him on a screen if you've attended other Hope campuses in the past. But even he, he'll come here and he'll just point you to Jesus. That's what he's done for me throughout my life. Maybe you have people in your life, they just point to Jesus. And Jesus came into the world and he said, everything points to me. I'm the completion. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the one who brings it all together. I'm the dactylography of the biblical crossword puzzle, if you will. So let's unpack. Like, what is Jesus saying here? Why is it that it made people upset? For the very first part of that reading, you heard, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. Now, what was the law? The word that's used there for the law that Jesus would have said would have been Torah. Everybody say Torah. You might recognize Torah from last week. You might recognize Torah from last semester. Torah uh, is also known as the first five books of the Bible. In Jewish tradition today, they still call their first five books the Torah. Now, very specifically, these are the commands of the Bible. You've probably heard of 10 of these commands. They're known as the 10 commandments. Anybody here ever heard of the 10 commandments? Probably. What you may not know is there are, all, there are also 603 other commandments that follow after those 10 commandments. And together as the people of God, let's go ahead and recite them. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm kidding. I can't do that. It's a lot, right? And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to throw those things away. Now, what's he implying when he says that? When he says that, he's implying that people are saying that's what he's doing. And I think that there are two different groups of people who would say that's what Jesus is doing. And I think that we can find ourselves in those two different groups of people today. The first group would have been the Pharisees and those teachers of religious law. I said this before, let me say it again. If you're wondering, what's a Pharisee? A Pharisee is someone who wasn't fair, yes, see. They're very legalistic and angry Christians. And, so, and they weren't Christians, they were Jewish people. They didn't like Jesus, so they weren't Christians. But they were very religious people, and they believed that if I could just get right with God through following the rules, those 613 commandments in the Old Testament, if I could do that, then I would be right with God. And here, they come, and here comes this Jesus figure who's telling people about how I've come to you. Their entire lives, they thought, we're supposed to get to God. And here comes Jesus saying, I've come to you. And so the Pharisees are like, well, he's just completely throwing away everything we've dedicated our lives to. This is terrible. And then I wonder if there was another group of people who heard Jesus and his teachings and talking about grace. And when they heard him, they thought, well, this Jesus guy seems pretty cool. So I guess we can just throw away everything else, right? I mean, who really needs the Old Testament? When people think about the Bible these days, oftentimes people don't have a problem with the New Testament. Yay, Jesus, he's coming to save the day, that's great. But when we talk about the Old Testament, like when we talk about a flood that covered the earth, when we talk about laws and rules and instructions for building a tabernacle, if you even know what that is, we're like, okay, you know what, I think I'm just gonna skip a few pages here. You know, that whole thing about not combining different claws, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. So let's just bypass it, right? And Jesus is saying, I won't let you get away with that. Jesus is saying, I have come to be the continuation of these things that you've been hearing about and studying about for a very long time. 
See, the word of God, and up to that point, the word of God, the Holy Scriptures, it's what we would know as the Old Testament. It's the law, those five books of the Torah that taught the commands, and then also all these different prophetic scriptures that pointed to a coming Messiah who would save the world. That's what they had for their Bible. And Jesus was so ingrained in it. He was so filled with it. It just poured out of him. He's always quoting scripture. It's crazy. And Matthew, the author of this book, wants you to know that. In fact, up to this point in Matthew chapter five, Matthew has already credited Jesus with fulfilling seven different Old Testament prophecies. Matthew's trying to tell you, this is the Jesus, this is the Messiah, this is the Savior that the Old Testament was talking about. Don't throw it out. It really, really matters. Hold on to it. And then you've got Jesus who just keeps on quoting it over and over and over again. And so if we feel that temptation to say, you know, I like that Jesus figure, but I'm gonna put away the God of the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't let us get away with that. Instead, it just comes out of him. And it comes out of him in his times of trial. I think that it is so important that when we see how the word of God impacted Jesus, we can see that it gives us that same kind of strength. Here's what I mean when I say that. When Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he's fasting. He hasn't eaten. Many of you may know the story about when Jesus gets baptized. Right after he gets baptized, it's this incredible moment. He goes out into the desert and he doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. How hangry would you be? When you haven't eaten for 40 minutes, at least in my case, I start to say all sorts of things and none of them are scripture. Like, how do you feel when life feels hard? Well, Jesus, hungry in the desert, is encountered by Satan. The devil approaches Jesus and the devil tempts Jesus three different times and he tries to convince Jesus to disrespect and disobey the word of God, the scriptures, and instead give in to his ideas of what's right and wrong. And do you know how Jesus fights off the devil? Jesus fights off the devil by quoting the Bible, by quoting the word of God. He says, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then in the next temptation, he says, you must not test the Lord your God. In the final temptation, he says, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. What is he doing? He is absolutely filled with and breathing out the word of God. This is who he is. When we read about Jesus in the Bible, we're not discounting everything that's come before him, but instead we see him as the fulfillment of everything that's come before him. And I think that that is really important because I know that there are parts in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when you read it, you're like, that is really messed up. That's broken. God would send a flood and destroy the earth. What's up with that? I don't like this God very much. He seems like a big, mean bully. And sometimes I think that's how we see God. And so we try to disassociate from the God of the Old Testament. We say, I worship Jesus, the God of the New Testament. Jesus is saying it's the same. Now, I also want to tell you this. What's the reason why God gives those rules in the Old Testament? Like, what's the reason for it? Is it just to be a spoil sport? Is it just to be angry? Is it just to be mean? The answer is no. It's to give you strength. It's to show you that this is the way that life is supposed to be. It's to show you that when Satan or evil tempts you with the things that seem to be irresistible, you actually do have the strength to resist and instead keep your eyes on God's word. 
when those things come into your life and you know this isn't gonna be good for me, but I'm gonna fall into it and then I'm gonna wake up and once again, I'm gonna be frustrated with myself and it's a cycle and it's a cycle and it's a cycle and I'm just weak. God says, no, you're not. Because I've given you the same tools and the same resources that I gave my son. I've given you the word of God. God doesn't give you these rules to keep you away from life. God gives you these rules to give you life. You can go ahead and take a look at when God starts giving laws in the Bible. It comes in the book of Exodus. And it comes so conveniently after God has freed his people from slavery. So many of us think that laws given by God are the things that we have to do in order to get to God. The things that we have to do in order to get free. But God says the law is actually something I'm giving you now that you're already in freedom. Here's the way that I like to phrase it is God didn't give commandments to free people. He gave commandments to freed people. And so when God gives us this law, God's law reveals how free people live. Was there ever a person more free than Jesus? Was there ever a person who was more free to share love, more free to share kindness, more unoffended, more focused, more driven than Jesus? Why? Because he's free. He's free because he's living in the way that God intended for this world to be. When God gives us his law, he's not trying to keep us from life. He's showing us this is what real life looks like. And I want you to see it in my son, Jesus. I think that a lot of us, when we think about the law, we think about a roadmap. Now, I am still young enough to where I don't actually know how to use one of these, but maybe some of you do. Like, can we, can we, we can actually, we can name this, right? Like, you know what this is, this is a, a map, right? And a lot of times when we see the law, we think, okay, it's like a map, right? And if I follow all the instructions and all the directions perfectly, I will get to my destination. And maybe we think that destination is freedom. Maybe we think that destination is success. What is it? If I follow God's law, if I follow the directions perfectly, I'll, I'll get with him. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Rather, I think that God's law and the rules that God gives us for life is much more like a car manual. Now, this is the car manual to my car, a base model Honda HRV. Don't be jealous. I was curious who, who drives a Honda HRV. And so I actually looked it up. There was a one reviewer uh, who wrote it this way. The Honda HRV is for the new grandmother driving away from responsibilities and toward memories with their precious new legacy. <laughs> and your pastor. And what, is, what does this manual do for me, right? This manual tells me you as a responsible adult, capable, it's not telling me where to go. It's, it's telling me, drive. Like, look, we're not trying to get somewhere with our faith. When you read the Old Testament, and sometimes you feel a little bit intimidated, you're like, oh no, I can't follow all 613 of those laws. How am I ever going to get to where God wants me to get? Don't you know God's already brought his gift to you? Jesus has come to you. He has shown up, and he says, let's drive. Let's go. This is how free people live. This is how free people drive. To quote Matthew McConaughey one more time, all right, all right, all right, start those engines, let's go. I've seen way too many Matthew McConaughey movies. I'm sorry. It's kind of like an obsession. It's weird. Anyway, Lincoln. All right. I think like 25% of you got that. There's enough laughter. And I think that this is good for us to know. 
Like the God of the Old Testament is a God who gives good and loving gifts. And if that same God who gives good and loving gifts is in the Old Testament and showing up in these stories where they make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, it gives you some hope for what might be happening. Because I get it. I read stories in the Old Testament and I'm like, ooh, that is gross, that's awful. And you start to feel angry and disappointed or sad, or maybe you feel like God is cold. I think that when you're reading the stories of the Old Testament and sometimes you see the real bad brokenness of it, I mean, I'm talking about thousands of people dying at once and you're angry and you're frustrated, you're like something's missing, this is wrong. You are feeling what God feels when he sees that there's something missing that there's something wrong with his perfect creation that he made to live in freedom. This has always been the truth about God. Ever since brokenness showed up into the world, he made a promise, I'm going to do something about it. We feel the same thing that God feels when he sees the brokenness in the world, but God can actually save it, we can't. And if you remember this from last week, here's the promise that God made all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, I will cause hostility between you and the, and the women. I did it again, same typo as last week, and the woman. Now here he's talking to the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve and said, I just want you to eat that fruit. You know, that's my snake impersonation. I'll be at the M shop later doing all of them, all my impersonations. And between uh, your offspring and her offspring, and then he says to the serpent, he says to evil, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. You'll try to bite at him. You'll only get his foot. Now the people in the Old Testament, they didn't live with the privilege that we live today. We can read these stories, but yeah, but Jesus came and he saved the day and he freed us of our sins. When people in the Old Testament are living through these experiences, the only thing that they have is God always keeps a promise. God doesn't break his promises. So whatever's gonna happen, whether it happens in my lifetime or the next generations, I, I just have to trust that God's gonna keep his word because God keeps his word. And he did. He kept his word. He kept his promises. Because you know how the story goes, right? Like people fall short. We break those laws that he gives us to live in freedom. And we would think that if God was normal, if God was natural, like a human, he would just count his losses and walk away. But even when humanity falls short of this perfect creation that God wants us to live into, he will not give up. In fact, after Israel, his people had been going through these highs and lows with one another. God gives them the freedom, like, hey, live in freedom. This is how free people live. And they continue to live like they're slaves. Not necessarily slaves to a nation, but slaves to oppression in spiritual and cosmic sorts of ways. And there are all sorts of consequences for these things that they've done. God won't give up on them. He won't walk away. Instead, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, he gives them this promise. He tells them, my promises aren't ending for you. Would you go ahead and read this with me? Because this is, to me, I think one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. And it gives us this deep insight into the heart of God. Even when the rest of the world is falling apart, God stays consistent and God stays true. Would you read this with me? The day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. They broke that covenant, even though I loved them as a husband loves his wife. Keep on going. But this is the new covenant 
I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Whoa, there's a lot going on there. Everybody go, whoo. There is a lot going on there. The first thing is, is God saying, I want my word, my law, my free living to be so in you that it's actually renovating and recreating your heart. I want it to be ingrained in you in the same way that it would be ingrained in Jesus, that it just comes out. And I know that sometimes that's very difficult because you read the scriptures like, I'm not getting anything out of this. It's like the crossword puzzle. Dactylography is not making sense to me right now. And we just, we just walk away. So how do we read it? Like, how do we stick with it? The interesting thing is you stick with this in the same way that you stick with anything that you're trying to learn. You stick with this in the same way with anything that you're trying to pick up and make a part of your life. You allow it to get deep within your heart. And the way that it gets deep within your heart is by you allow it to touch all the different places in your life. I read this about singing. Do you know why you can remember lyrics to songs so easily when you like the songs? You can remember lyrics to songs because it is actually tapping into all sorts of senses and all sorts of strengths. There's somebody who wrote about it like this and said, when you sing, you are expressing emotion. You are utilizing muscles. You are joining in community and you are, and you are strengthening your mind. It's touching in all these different places. And so it just comes out of you because all these different places about you are learning this. So I want to put it this way. Anybody here grow up going to Bible camp? Okay, a few of you. Awesome. A lot of you. That's cool. What's the best part about Bible camp? For me, it was the songs, right? For me, it was the songs. And the songs weren't just songs. But the songs also had actions. And the song also had music. And the song also had community. There was so much going on. There was this one song called Days of Elijah. Anybody grow up knowing that song? And like, what if I just taught it to you like this? Could you go ahead and repeat after me? Oh my gosh, some of you get it. So if I say repeat after me, you say after me because I said repeat, then after me. Repeat after me. After me. Pretty great. I spent four summers working in camp, best four summers of my life, except for the summers I spent with my wife because I love you so much. Anyway, <laughs> like just, just repeat this after me and see how well you remember it. Behold, he comes. Riding on the clouds. What? Shining like the sun. At the trumpet calls. So lift your voice. It's here, Jubilee. It's here, Jubilee. And out of, Zion's hill, out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. Salvation comes. Okay, let's say all of that together, right? You couldn't. You just heard it for the first time, and it was just kind of one sense. It was just sort of one emotion. It was just one thing happening. It was, it was a voice. But what if we start to combine things like that? Nicole, would you come down to the front and help me teach the actions of this song? Then I'll also invite my friend Dan Antoine to the front. And I think, perfect, awesome. We got one other person who's going to help us teach this. So what I need you to do is stand on up. And we're just gonna see, it's a little bit easier to learn this when we start to involve other things. Come on up, Courtney, you can come on up. So it's like this, repeat after me. You gotta turn around, face Holden in the booth. Pretend like you're riding a horse. And now go ahead and turn around. Behold, he comes. Riding on the clouds. Shining like the sun. At the trumpet calls. So lift your voice. It's the year of Jubilee. And out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. 
you're starting to get a little bit more, but what if we actually added a little bit of music to it? So back in the day, my friend Dan and I, Dan is from Okaboji Lutheran Bible Camp. You guys may be uh, familiar with him. His mic is unplugged, so I'm going to give you this one. Oh, that's wireless. Crazy. Technology. So Dan is going to play this. And just because back in the day I used to play the drums for Dan, I'm going to hop on the drums. And uh, um, let's see here. I think... Hey, is he on? We're good. You know the song? All right, Courtney's going to lead it. Nicole's going to lead it. Dan's going to lead it for us. And uh, I just want you guys all to see, like, hey, when we start to put this into more parts of our life, it, it comes together. Am I right? If you're ready, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. We don't have to repeat after me anymore because you're just going to know it. And perfect. There it is. All right, here we go. You ready, Dan? of Elijah, declaring the word of the Lord. And these are the days of your servant, Moses, righteousness being restored. And though these are days of great trial, of famine and darkness and sore, so we are the voice in the desert, crying, prepare either way. Here we go now. Behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun, at the trumpet call, lift your voice, year of jubilee, out of science till salvation comes. Henry, I apologize. I think I ruined your drum set. Wow, you can go ahead and take a seat. Now, if you're like, wow, Danny, that didn't do anything for me, good luck getting that out of your head for the rest of the week. You will see, because it included your voice, your strength, it included your movement, your actions, it included community, it included expressing this emotion, it's something that starts to come out of you. And before you know it, a couple of days from now, you'll be like, behold, he comes. You'll be like in the dining hall line, running like the sun, you know, like you just won't be able to stop yourself. In Psalm chapter one, it says, I want to meditate on your word, God. Meditate on God's word, which literally means to murmur his words. And we do it in community and we do it with one another. And all of a sudden it starts touching into all these different places of our life and it starts to come out of us. But let me tell you this, as it comes out of you, you also notice that because we live in this world, other sorts of things happen too. Like, I get it. You can be a person who's trying so hard and you're noticing these differences in your life and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And yet somehow, some way, it's just, oh, I'm so broken. Oh, I'm still not following. Oh, I'm still not living like I'm free. What's the problem here? Here's the best part about God. He invites you to live free like that. But do you see the end of that passage in Jeremiah? He says that when you don't live up to it, I forgive you. I will forget your sins. What happens when a relationship gets so changed and transformed and all of a sudden it's like, it's the only thing you think about. I mean, my goodness, do you really want this to pour through your life? Do you really want this to be something that touches all the different places of your life? See the one who wants to bring it to you. See what he's doing. See how much it means to him. He says, I will forgive you. 
Have you ever done somebody wrong? I mean, have you ever really hurt someone? And if you're someone right now who's saying, no, nah, not really, you're just not very self-aware, and that's okay. <laughs> but when we really hurt someone, we've really done somebody wrong, we're left feeling like this bit of brokenness, almost a sense of incompletion because that relationship that we had is now incomplete, especially when it's one that mattered a lot to you. I think all of us can relate to that part. Maybe here's a part that some of us can't relate to. Have you ever been deeply forgiven? Like somebody works through it, they feel through the things and they come back to you, not because they have to, but out of free will, they come back and they forgive you. It strengthens that relationship, that relationship in a new way. Why? Because all of a sudden you're starting to see that there's a new strength to that relationship. That relationship has some sort of unconditionality that can't be touched or broken by the broken things in this world, by the bad stuff. And now all of a sudden it's not like, now I'm not forcing myself to jump into this and let it touch every part of my life. He's come into my life and he's touching every part of my life and he's transforming me from the way out. He's renovating my heart. He's the one who's getting ingrained into me. He's the one who's living through me. He's the one who brings me freedom. And it transforms us because we have this transformed relationship with Jesus who says, I'm the one who completes you. One of the worst lines that's ever been said in a movie ever is from Jerry Maguire and he walks in and he says to this woman that he loves, you complete me. It's beautiful for a movie, but it's theologically awful. We'll never be able to look at another person and say, you complete me. You are a complete person right now, right here today. Because Jesus has come in your life. He says, there's an unconditionality to my relationship with you. It will never be incomplete. Because when you fall on it, I forgive you. And I don't remember your sins. I'm not keeping score. I'm not gonna keep on bringing them back to your face and say, don't you remember that time when like, you really kind of messed up? Anybody got a friend like that? They forgive you, but then they're always reminding you about forgiving you. Yeah, you know, like, I mean, like, yeah, totally, no problem. Hey, do you remember that one time that you crashed my car? I mean, that's pretty extreme. <laughs> and if you've crashed your friend's car, stop driving your friend's cars. Jesus doesn't bring up way worse than that. That new covenant that God is talking about that's going to bring about this forgiveness, what is it? Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 26. He's sitting at the table with his disciples for the last time for a meal. And he says, this is my blood. He raises a cup. He says, this is my blood. It confirms the new covenant between God and his people. That one that you've been reading about ever since the Old Testament, you know, that part of the Bible that maybe sometimes you don't look forward to reading? It's me. This is the new covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. There are going to be so many different people who tell you, and I know that they mean well sometimes, you've got to give more to something in order to get out of it. If you want your dream career, you're gonna to have to give more of your time to it. If you want more in that relationship, you gotta give yourself more to that person. If you want more for your social status, you gotta invest more into whatever social platform it is you're investing into to make a name for yourself. But Jesus is the one who says, you don't give me anything, I give you everything. Maybe a more theological way to put this, especially if we're talking within the context that Jesus spoke about, Pharisees, they're the ones who will tell you, you need to get your sacrifices to God. You've got to put in so God gives you something. But Jesus is the sacrifice who came to us. The covenant is not a fair deal, is it? The covenant's not a fair deal because we get everything and God gives everything. But this is how much he loves you. 
This is how much God hurt when he's looking over the Old Testament stories is it's incomplete, it's not finished. I want more for the world than this. And so he does something about it. Now, are you starting to see that when Jesus is teaching these kinds of things, it sets up a platform for him to be criticized and ostracized by the religious teachers and Pharisees of his day? Because they're hearing this Jesus say, everything you've been investing your entire life into is not going to matter in the end if it's not with me. Matthew chapter five, verse 20, this is in our reading again. He said, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Bummer. He's not just saying you need to be as good as the religious teachers and the Pharisees to get the kingdom of heaven. He's saying even they don't get it. So who's the one that suffices? Who's the one that makes up for it? Who's the one that completes it? Who's the one that finishes it? Jesus is saying, it's me. No wonder people were either angry with him or blown away by him. He's bringing about this groundbreaking message to the world that would have been more dramatic than someone in the 1700s sending a text message. And he's the completion of everything that we've been looking for. So how do we do this, right? Like, how do we follow Jesus in this world? How does this transform us from the inside out? How do we be a person who sees the story of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament? How is it that when we think about the Bible, it's supposed to impact our life? Well, Jesus said, if you stack it all up, the law, the prophets, everything. Here's what it amounts to. See, there were Pharisees who tried to back Jesus into a corner once and for all on his teaching. They walked up and they said, hey, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? You've been talking a lot about that. So what is it? If I paraphrase it, he just said love. Now he said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The way that we transform this world, the way that we see transformation in our lives is is the love that enters us and the love that leaves us. What's the most important of it all? I mean, my goodness, you're not gonna memorize 613 laws. I don't think you will. You might be able to, but I don't think you will. Love. Have your heart renovated. Love. Love because the one who loves forever has reached into every part of your life. It is so true. There are gonna be lots of different laws and rules that you don't live up to, whether they're biblical or the rules and laws that somebody else has put, put in your life. All the time, we're just falling short of laws and rules. It's not that those laws and rules are bad, it's just I'm not perfectly capable of satisfying all of them. But here's the great thing about God's laws. We can and do break God's laws. You could never break God's love. His love isn't going anywhere. And how do you know? It's again in our reading for today. Jesus set it up at the beginning of his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. What's he saying? Now in the Greek, what it's saying there is it's an iota or a little tittle. It's the word that's used there. Uh, an iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, in the Hebrew alphabet. So it would have been, imagine like just seeing a comma. It would have been something like that. And a little tittle would have been like a little serif on a word. And what's God saying? God is saying even the smallest little bits, even the very style of my handwriting won't disappear before this planet. 
Why? Because when God speaks, it is a promise that cannot be broken. God speaks intentionally. He doesn't speak carelessly. When he says a word, he means it. And what God means, he's not changing. And do you know what word God spoke into existence that mattered so much to him? You read through the Old Testament, you start at the very beginning and you read this creation story. God created, he said it was good. God created, he said it was good. God created, he said it was good. But then God created you. And he said, very good. God creates with a word and God's word never goes away. You were created. You were created with a word. So let me say it again. God's word never goes away. And if God's word never goes away, what he's created with his word never goes away. That means you are never going away. Deal with one another first off, but also have some confidence. Have some courage. God made you and he's not undoing that. It's not a mistake. Didn't make trash, that's for sure. When Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, why is he doing it? Because when God looked over creation, he saw that it was broken and he saw that it was incomplete. He said, I can do something about this. And what he's going to do about it is not to say, I'll wipe them out. I mean, my goodness, the very easiest way for God to deal with the sin in the world would be to eliminate anything that sins anything that falls short of God's glory. But he refuses to do that, doesn't he? He refuses to do that. He's been saying this promise over and again. I love you. I'll forgive you. I won't remind you about your sins. My love for you is unconditional. Even the worst and broken things in this world cannot damage the unconditionality of my love for you. This is what I think of you. You're not going anywhere because he's not going anywhere. I think one of the most beautiful uh, prophecies in the scriptures comes from Isaiah chapter 54. And it says this, the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain my covenant, my promise, my word of blessing will never be broken. One day the mountains are gonna crumble. The hills are gonna disappear. The sun's gonna burn out. And at the end of the universe, there will still be God and there will still be you. And he's gonna be inviting the most surprising people, right? Me, you. I mean, the Pharisees, the religious teachers of law, they, they looked at the people that Jesus hung out with and just really bothered them. Why, why are you hanging out with in the way that it was described in the Bible as the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the notorious sinners? Why were they so drawn to him? I think they were so drawn to him because they saw that even the worst things in this world, the things they contributed to and the things that happened to them could not break his unconditional love. Jesus is just throwing forgiveness parties everywhere. And he's inviting all of us. So when we close this message tonight, we're gonna move into a time of communion. And communion is literally a forgiveness party. And you're invited. The invitation is Jesus himself saying at the table, it's for the forgiveness of all sins. That includes you, that includes me. It's even got food, there's bread and there's wine. Tonight it's grape juice because some of you are under 21. We're not gonna do that. He's got an invitation for you. 
So that question that I asked you at the beginning is like, when you read about the, but when you think about the Bible, how does it impact your life? Well, maybe if you rephrase it just a little bit, Jesus, the fulfilled word of God, isn't going anywhere. So how does that impact your life? What does that mean for you? And I'm just gonna end this message with a question right there. Think about it. Be like the author of Psalm 1. Meditate over this. Murmur over it. Think about it. Let it touch every part of your life. What does it mean for you that Jesus isn't going anywhere? I wanna invite you to stand on up and I want to invite you to receive his love tonight. I, I don't know, what is it that you walked in here with tonight? I, I don't know. There's nothing you have to do to be cleansed of that. There's nothing you have to do to be redeemed for that. There's nothing you have to do to feel fulfilled from that again. Jesus has done the work and he's come to you. So come forward, receive his love. May you never be the same. Amen. Let's eat, let's drink.